Hello and welcome to A New and Ancient Story. This is a podcast, a series of conversations, interviews, and occasionally speeches dedicated to the transformation of self and society. The basic idea is that we are moving from a story of separation to a new story, new for the dominant culture at least, of interbeing. What that means will become apparent as you listen to this series. We explore things like technology, spirituality, agriculture, healing, economics, politics, ecology, relationships, education. I mean, pretty much everything that is undergoing a transition today as our old story nears collapse. If you want to engage these ideas more deeply, you can come to our website, charleseisenstein.net. Hi, Fritzi. Hi, how are you? Well, thanks for taking the time. Oh, it's such a pleasure. Your, um, your influence on what's happening is so important and so transformative already. So I'm, I'm so grateful for you and your, um, just the way you see the world and your compassion. It comes through every interview and, um, you know, that's changing the world. Well, thank you. It's very kind of you to uh, see that. Um, yeah, and I could say the same for you, actually, not that I've seen many of your interviews, but I've seen your short film. Uh, and uh, my intention is that everybody who watches or listens to this podcast, I'm going to ask people to, to watch the film first so they know what we're talking about. So speaking now as if everybody has seen it. Um, if you've seen it, you know how powerful it is. And for me, it reaches me on a level beyond information that I could write down, but it reach, reached me on a body level too. Uh, it's so important beyond what my rational mind could explain because, you know, like, like, okay, you know, work in prisons and, and rationally, maybe when they come out, they're going to be better adjusted to society and the crime rate will go down or something like that. But somehow, I think that what happens in the crucible of prisons, it's like this resonance chamber that emits uh, some kind of frequency out into the rest, into the, into the world. Like what happens in prisons is really important because in some way it's a holographic microcosm of our entire society where everything that plays out in our society is there in distilled form. So that means that what happens there has an outsized effect on the rest of society. And, and do you wanna comment on that or should I just start asking you questions? Or? Wait, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> there, is a, there is a coda in, for the correctional officers, what happens on the yard stays on the yard. It's like Vegas. And so there's no accountability right now on what's going on in prison. And so what you're saying is it's correct. It's, it's, it's vital, but it's also vital that we know what's going on and that we know that 67,000 people before COVID were in solitary confinement. Now, 300,000 people are in solitary confinement and what solitary does to the brain, what it does to juveniles when their brains aren't even developed. They're in solitary for a year. They have no, uh, 
you know, the brain is forming. So it needs, it needs humans to reflect back to them. It needs stimulus. It needs problem solving. And all of this is denied. And so we're actually, not only are we holding them and controlling them, but we're also, we're deforming them. We're, mm-hmm. we're, and we're destroying, not that we can't recover, but the intention is to annihilate and destroy until instead of rehabilitate, educate and heal. And, and I know we're better than this. I know our intentions are better. So, but what you're saying is we need full accountability. We need body cams to start, but, and to do no harm. Mm -hmm. If we do nothing, just not harm, that's a big step. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, the solitary confinement, so quadruple the level that it was before COVID basically. And again, that is kind of a distilled version of what's happening to everybody in our society now. You know, we're all not quite in, well, some people are in solitary confinement, basically, like we're close to it in old folks' homes, for example. But a lot of people, if they live alone, you know, and they're in lockdown, uh, or, but just like the limiting of human contact in the prisons, it's in an extreme form. It uh, illustrates the adage that when you lock somebody up, your freedom is confined, is restricted as well. Like what we do in the prisons, it feeds back and we're doing it to ourselves outside the prisons. Absolutely. And just to extract on that point is people are dying from covid isolated and that's what's going on in prisons all the time mothers are dying in in the civilian world and they're not the people in prison aren't able to comfort them or be there when they're dying and that's what we're getting a glimpse of it and it's it is it is a reflection of where we're at it's mm-hmm. i believe that it's that dostoevsky quote how you treat prisons is a reflection on how society is or whatever that quote is um, the violence that we are putting into our society is a reflection of the violence, the violence, first of all, that's created in, in our, in our neighborhoods, our hoarding, our inability to see poverty and not wanting to see poverty, not wanting to see addiction, homelessness, all of these symptoms of our own internal violence of our othering, not only of, you know, in our political system, it, it, it's all, it, it all is showing up in, in all corners of our lives right now. Um, and in, but in prison, we, we stopped the idea of any kind of compassion. The Pell Grants were removed in the nineties and now it's just vengeance and annihilation instead of a second chance or a first chance is really, it's a first chance. And, mm-hmm. and I wanna say, I got a second chance. I was, I was failing out of school and I applied to Vassar college. I really wanted to go to Yale by the way, but I knew I wouldn't get in because of my grades and my SATs. When you're traumatized, I have an ACE score an adverse childhood experience score of eight. And when you have that much trauma, your ability to learn is deeply impaired. You're, you're unable to really, because you're in fight or flight. And when you're in fight or flight, the body, the, um, the amygdala takes over and the prefrontal cortex is not, not really available and, or the hippocampus, which is memory and learning. So my grades were an abomination and 
but I applied to Vassar Early Decision and I wrote about the violence in my home and I got a second chance. And I think, you know, on some level, on some level, that's one of the things that has driven me to, to my work in prison is because I got a chance. And even though I'm a white woman and I probably would have gotten other chances, I really got a chance. Someone saw me and said, okay, let's give her a shot. And when you go to prison, the amount of possibility that is, is stored in these, in these cages is unbelievable. The talent, the brain power, the art, art, artistry, the creativity, and also the, you know, the annihilation. Um, and so that's our job is to transform that because we do that for them and them being us, actually, there is no them. We do that for us. We do it for all. And then we start seeing homeless people as part of us. We start seeing the addicts, not as criminals, but as people who are trying to keep themselves alive. And Yeah. So, um, you know, if the prison is a mirror of our society in distilled form, and it shows us something about ourselves and, and what we're capable of and how deep the, the violence and the harm, the trauma have gone. What your film also brings up is a corresponding potential for miraculous healing. Yeah. And, and if, it's, if it's possible in the prison with these men, then where isn't it possible? So like really what your film gave me was, it, it, it gave me a, a, a lifeline to an authentic hope for the, for the planet. Thank you. I, I, thank you. I, I, th I believe we need to sit in circles all the time, every day. Circles. I mean, that's what's so miraculous about the Zoom phenomenon. We are sitting in circles, um, but those circles are what heals. And those circles, everyone is equal. Everyone, you know, from Jeff Bezos to the homeless man, we're all, if we sit in the circle, we're all equal. And in that, uh, knowledge, acknowledgement, then we find out what people need, who needs what, and where can we heal? And what do you need? Oh, you need, you know, you need your rent money and you need, you need a car so you can get to work. We can find the ways to bring that about, but it's, but it's, and it's not being angry at the rich for being, for being successful. That's also kind of annihilating. Um, but also, you know, honoring the rich for their philanthropy and, and their open hearts and that they see the need to, to solve poverty because they, I think the, the wealthy people in the society have an obligation to help repair this, help repair this poverty, which is a construct. Poverty is a construct. Um, I was watching Ali G interview Newt Gingrich it reminded me that he, you know, he was talking to the, to well about welfare moms and how they need in four years to arbitrarily, you know, get their acts together. And it's like, no, there is no timeline for getting your act together when you're traumatized. And, you know, trauma takes so long. Thomas Hubble yeah. calls, calls it ice in the body that needs to thaw. And, you know, when, 
Yeah. I mean, this whole thing about the welfare moms, it's, it's not like putting more pressure on them is going to help them get their act together. You would only think that if you don't understand what it's like to be in their circumstances. Exactly. What is it like to be you, right? Yeah. Yeah. What is it like to be you? Um, I felt like in, in your film that really came through, like there was such a human connection, especially in the part, you know, when you were sitting in the circle and they were telling just a little bit of their stories. Uh, the one guy really, I mean, the, the guy who, whose mother tried to flush him down the toilet, um, the guy who said that he was afraid to step into the circle when invited because what are all the other guys going to think? And just looking at these beautiful men, I, I, I went back, like I, I did a rewind and I looked at their faces as they might've looked like when they were babies. Mm. You know, every single one of them was once upon a time, a beautiful little sweet baby who, who's, who wants what every baby wants and is innocent and just totally themselves. And it always, whenever I find myself in judgment of somebody like Donald Trump, um, like, you know, whoever, whoever's unflattering photograph you put on a media site uh, to invite hatred and ridicule toward that person, I always think, okay, what happened to that person, to that baby? that turned them into somebody who's so full of hate. Like, what do you have to do to somebody? And in, in, in your film, that question is answered very specifically for some of these men. And, and then, I mean, you go in there, you know, you're giving them a tiny little scrap of the healing that would correspond to the amount of trauma, like a tiny little scrap. And even with that little scrap, I'm sensing that that like big shifts are happening. Can you tell me about any of those? Like maybe some stories or just some, like give me a, a, a picture. Yeah, I just you know. want to, um, it's the question to ask is not what's wrong with you. It's what happened to you exactly as you said. But the question that is asked when they're up again, up to a judge or a prosecutor, it's what's wrong with you. Clearly mm -hmm. this man needs to be put away for 300, 400 years. Um, clearly this teenager, um, 14 years old needs to be tried as adult, but they don't, they're not taking in that the prefrontal cortex isn't formed. Um, so some of the miracles that I witnessed happened during the pilot program we did in 2019, when we developed the circle, um, one of the men, Ronald, he came in probably three classes into, into the pilot program and uh, I, he, everyone does the ACE test and we do do the circle, but the ACE test, he had all all 10 of the original ACE test. And then uh, we created a, a supplemental ACE test of 20 of 10 other questions. And he had all 10 on there. So uh, as you go up the scale of having all these adversities constantly, and he talked about his mother trying to kill him when he was five and he was taken away and put into these homes. And the, 
you know, a lot of this foster care is really foster abuse. It's, it's being raped and even more annihilated, you know, and then putting on a good face for the department of, of human services or whatever that department is. Uh, so within about six months, um, you know, we, we, we have a circle of seven hours. We go to prison and we sit there for seven hours. We drive up for two and a half. So I'm like, we're going to be here all day. We're not coming for 10 minutes. So we sit there for seven hours. We bring snacks. We bring as many volunteers as they'll let us. And they come in with, we all come in with open hearts. And, you know, we sit in the circle of equality. We're all equal in that circle. Well, one day he just said, I got to say something. And he jumped up, Ronald jumped up out of the chair and he did a little dance. And he said, I revoked my DNR. And uh, which a DNR is a do not resuscitate. So, you know, he was like, yeah, if, if something happens to me, just kill, like, let me die. And now he's like, I want to see how this goes. I want to see what's going to happen now. So that was one. And a couple of other things, um, two men stopped, stopped using heroin. Uh, they took one of the guys out though, because he was using heroin. So he was being penalized and they, they put him on C status. C status is they take away your television. They take away basically all contact with your family. So someone who's using drugs is basically trying to keep themselves alive. That's, and the system, the system is created so that if you break a rule, you are annihilated. You go to the shoe uh, or solitary confinement um, you're give, you're taking away all support. So a cry for help is seen as a, as, as a, a penalty. Mm -hmm. And so these rules have to be completely, um, I, I think rules, I don't know. I don't know how to redo that system. All I do know is that everyone needs to know what trauma is, how it presents, what happens when the prefrontal cortex is offline. And that goes for the the correctional officers too, because they're traumatized. The life expectancy of a correctional officer is 59 years old, which presents as six aces. If you have six or more aces, you are your life expectancy drops by 20 years. So the amount of toxic stress that is in that environment is, is killing people that just go to their job every day. Um, not to mention 39% higher risk of, of suicide and 20% higher um, divorce rates and separation rates being a correctional officer. So it's the prisons annihilate every, anyone who walks in there, except for the volunteers. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, as I said in our last conversation, I've done a tiny bit of work in prisons and some people go through that annihilation and come out the other side as if from an alchemic crucible. Uh, some of the most magnificent human beings I've ever met were in that prison to the point where I, I you know, I think that if there's um, hope for a renaissance of our society, that it's going to draw from the prisons because I, just some of the most spectacular human beings. It was, it was, I've never been so humbled in my life as when I encountered these men in a maximum security prison. Uh, yeah, um, they are, 
they have plans. They have, I, they have dreams. Remember, they sit there 10, 20, 30 years thinking about what they did wrong and what, what needs to change. So that are some of our greatest assets are locked up. Um, some examples, one of the guys wants to create a STEM class for underserved youth. Um, another guy wants to create a community center where there's boxing so that they can get out their, their aggression as a male, as a young teenage male, I have a 14 year old who's, you know, bouncing off the walls here. So I get it. Um, I'm going to read you a couple of things. One man, uh, he sent me his ACE test and then he told me about his, his childhood adversity and he would hide from his mother behind the couch. And when she'd walk out, he'd like pee, he'd pee in his pants. And, um, and I wrote to him, I said, I'm so sorry. This is what, I, when I get these letters, I just got another letter yesterday. They're, they're, they're like, wow, this is like, oh my God, how could you survive that? Um, but when I write to them, I write, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry this happened to you. What happened to you is not okay. And then, um, and I, I wrote to this man and I kind of told him about my childhood adversity. And this is what he wrote to me. He wrote, I'm so sorry for what happened to you as a little girl. My heart breaks and I cry for you, cry with you, with the beautiful and magnificent little being that was never seen, that was you, you and your sister. I understand the terror and sadness you two experienced that you experienced. I love you for the beautiful being that you are and your sister. Give her my love and kindness. I see you. So if you wanna talk about the magnificence that's in prison, that, that brought me to tears because actually no one's ever said that to me. And I got to hear my own words reflected back. And what a gift. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm just thinking of that child so terrified of his own mother that he pees his pants when she appears. And then 10 years later, there he is before a judge telling him how horrible he is. And when did he ever get what a child needs, you know? And, and how are we ever, if we don't understand the origin of crime and of violence and, and like what turns people into people who harm others, if we don't understand it, and if we just see them as innately evil perpetrators that, that just turn bad, uh, randomly, we're never going to solve the problem. We're never going to have a society different from the one we have today. It's like, you know, if you're breaking out in sores and you just put band-aids on them all the time, like the, the source of the outbreak is never even looked at. And I just know we can do better than this. You know, this is... Yeah. Like, come on, we don't, we can't have a society where, where children are not terrified of their mothers, where they're not getting abused, where they're not getting violated. Like, I mean, of all of the things that a civilization can achieve, if we can't even achieve that, how can we validate and embrace our civilization? Like, you know, this has been true ever since I've become aware of this and so many other things. Like, it already indicts our civilization. And what could be more important? Some people say, well, you know, fighting climate change is more important because 
there won't be any children to save anymore if we don't fight climate change. But can we actually change our ways as a civilization if we have this endless engine of, of pain at the core of it? Like even consumerism, uh, you know, where does that come from? I think that comes from various kinds of trauma too. Yeah, that's why I'm so passionate about the kind of work you're doing because it really takes the most extreme and therefore most visible and understandable case. You know, like I, my mother didn't try to flush me down a toilet. You know, I probably would get a zero on the ACE test. I, you know, was very well loved. Yet in the extreme pictures of trauma, like I can recognize some of my own childhood too in a more muted form. The normalized trauma of our society and that normalized trauma depends on the extreme trauma and vice versa. They're all part of the same thing. And if we can address one, then we will also have addressed the other. Exactly. Climate change is healing prisons and climate change is the same thing. It's the same, it's the same amount of violence being put into the system. So it doesn't matter where it comes from or how it's presented. Um, what we do to the earth is the same thing that we're doing to prisons. It's what, how we're, our uh, consumerism is because we don't want to look at our traumas. We don't want to, we, our alcohol and our addiction, our opioid crisis, it's the same thing. It's, it's not wanting to really face the shame that we all feel for what we've done. And that's why I say there is no shame. I know there's, there's a good shame, but ultimately, fundamentally, we have to forgive all of it, mm -hmm. all of it. The man who killed that woman in robbery because he was addicted um, or the three straw, whatever these weird things are. And just to let you know about, we did an art class in on the right before Christmas and some of the men had never touched a crayon. Um, so you want to talk about a childhood. Um, the childhoods, those weren't childhoods. Those were, I mean, they were, holding guns at eight years old. They were doing meth at eight years old. They were, um, you know, they were hit in the face with a two by four with nails on it um, and didn't want to go to their father because they didn't want to go to the doctor. Just um, one guy talks about urinating, being in his bed in urine until he was 18 years old and going to school smelling like urine. So I'm, these kinds of atrocities can be First of all, Gandhi says uh, poverty is the worst form of violence. And when you're in that kind of toxic stress, you're in a state of violence. That's where the violence comes from. It comes from heightened, heightened, like being in your amygdala, being in fight or flight, fight, flight, freeze, or fawn, I've heard. Um, but those, those places of not being in your moral, your moral center, your center where you make good decisions, where you can save. People who are poor don't save. They buy, you know, I, I don't want to say they buy sneakers, but when they get enough money, they'll they'll go out and just treat themselves instead of knowing they got to save. I don't blame them. I would do the same thing. And it's it's not about there's no bootstraps to buy. It's it's 
you know, and I, you know, I live in Los Angeles down the street from me is an, is a poor neighborhood. And it's like, how can I, how can I make that? How can I integrate that into my life? How can I be that person? Um, and I think it happens. All of us is like, what is our violence deposit and what is our compassion deposit? Um, and I think we're starting to wake up. I really believe in us. I believe in our ability to pull this together. And it's these kinds of conversations and sitting in circles, getting to other communities and finding out what's going on and going to prisons and visiting prisons and finding out what's going on, knowing how many prisons are in your state. I have 35 in my state. How many jails, how many detention centers, how many children are being um, imprisoned instead? I mean, we have policemen at schools waiting for kids to act out. When you're a teenager, you're acting out. I don't care what teenager you are, but if you're black, you're going to prison. And so what is that? And um, so it's, it's, it's a request for compassion, a request for um, our better natures and seeing, as you said, that child that came out is magnificent. I know giving birth when I saw my baby, there was nothing more precious or more important in the world than, than taking care of that little creature. And I say that to the men who, whose mothers were on drugs or were 16 and the men who can't understand why they were not loved by their mothers. And I let them know, I say, no, they, they love you beyond any imagination. They just were never showed how, and they never, they never were given those tools and we have the tools. So let's use them. My, um, my first step is first is do no harm and then trauma-informed prisons and trauma responsive. It's very important that it also is trauma responsive because if you respond knowing somebody's traumatized, it shifts and suddenly it's, it's you deescalate the situation instead of, you know, pu- you know, treat them punitively. And we do that and we've shifted the whole, the whole game. I find it very hopeful that you're even permitted to do the work that you do in prisons. Is that a sign of a sea change in the mentality of corrections officials? Well, I, I don't know if they know what I'm doing in there. I don't know that they know the effect of a seven hour class on, on the rewiring of these men's brains. I mean, a couple of the results from that is they went out into the yard. Now, this is a maximum security prison in the middle of nowhere in the heart of California. After three classes, they went and created an interracial basketball game. Now you're in a prison that, that is divided by gangs, by, by race. Um, and they were like, no, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to shift this. And then of course the, the two leaders of that were taken out of my class. They were put on C status basically for doing that, for, for this kind of change. Uh, the prison unions don't really want change because then we lose customers. But my, I want to tell the prison unions, no, we need to pay the guards, the correctional officers more, train them, have them be advocates for change and rehabilitation. And thereby you still have customers, but these are, customers that don't threaten your life. And these are customers that become 
members of society that we can count on. And that's what's possible. And that's what we, we should want the, the, the liberation and enhancement of all humans in the world. We should vote for that. We should go for that because that's who we are. I want to, I want to educate everyone so that they can have critical thinking and, and really uh, the education behind bars documentary about those barred guys. I mean, how incredible, but how incredible is that? And how, how actually transformative to watch them transform before our eyes. Um, There were scholars and, and brilliant, you know, learning German and, you know, who wants to learn German anyway, but they were doing it. They were doing it and critical thinking. That's who we are. That's who all of us are. And, and the men in there, if you could read the hundreds of letters that are surrounding me, um, they have the solutions to heal our society. They actually can go back to their communities. Everyone wants to help the youth. They're like, we got to get back there so we can tell them what they're doing is, is misguided and heal those gangs. Those gangs are just families. Those, these are like, you know, random families that get created because they don't have them at home. Um, one of the guys said, what is family? I don't know what a family is. He's the same guy that was got, got hit with the two by four with nails in it through his jaw. Um, mm. So let's create a global family where we all take care of each other. And we see a homeless man and we see ourselves in that person. We see an incarcerated woman. We see ourselves in that person. It's, that is me. Yes actually truly is me it truly is this isn't you know the indulgent sympathy of somebody who's actually better than those people it's it's the direct recognition that if i were in those circumstances if i had had instead of my loving family if i had been hit by a two by four in the face if i'd been terrified all the time would i be would i make the kind of choices i make today of course not and to think that I would is just so ignorant and so arrogant. It's just, um, although I would say that ignorance and arrogance also come from trauma. So like, again, it's not like there are some good people and some bad people and let's figure out who the good guys are and who the bad guys are. The healing doesn't come from saying, oh, actually it's the felons and the convicts and the, those were actually the good guys all along and those who judge them are the bad guys. That's just the same wine in, in an old skin or whatever that metaphor is. Um, it's really to see the world with different eyes, to understand that we're all really the same being, looking at the world from different eyes, governed. It's not that we have no choice. You know, it's not that we are slaves to our circumstances or to our past, because we see people transcending, we see them healing. But to think that any one of us is by nature in our soul better than somebody else is a delusion. And if we operate our society, especially a criminal so-called justice system on that delusion, we are going to create more and more and more suffering. So for me, this is just about like accurately perceiving other people which you know, doesn't mean that, oh, I understand you were abused as a child, so I'm gonna let you run all over me. I'm gonna let you abuse me. That it's not, that, that's not what we're saying. 
We're saying, let's see reality here. And then maybe I will still have to run away or set a boundary or, or you know, even lock you up to protect me and others. But I won't be doing that because I have misdiagnosed you as fundamentally evil. It won't be because I don't see where you're coming from. So, so I probably will do that a lot less if I am not under the delusion that you're just a bad person. But whether or not I do lock you up, there's a, still a possibility to heal the conditions. Because if it's just someone's basic nature that they're evil, there's no healing possible, that they're irre irredeemable. Right. And, and well, I don't know. I think um, if we did MRI scans on those brains, if we used other modalities like psychedelics, which are basically rewire the brains, there's maybe possibility, there's possibilities for those people as well. Um, it's 95% of the men and women, I believe in prison can return home to us if they get enough care and enough trauma work. Um, it's the 5% that, that are really right now have no empathy, but that is probably because of child abuse. Um, that first year of neglect, if you're neglected within the first year, that brain matter really, first of all, it shrinks and the wiring doesn't, there's no empathy there. Um, there's some really horror stories of just being neglected, left in your crib for the whole day. Um, Bruce Perry writes uh, a few stories where, and then they make commit crimes. They have no empathy. They have no, they have no sense of attachment to any human. So those right. brains are really, um, they're off kilter, but 95% are whole, are whole humans and they just need some attention. They need to be seen. That's the key. And um, that's one of the keys to resilience is being seen. And that's, that's one of the work, that's the work at Compassion Prison Project is to see them, to see who they are and to reflect back their magnificence instead of what they've been told, which is their reflect back their violence and their worthlessness, which is a lie. It's just, a, it's a blatant lie. And our, the systems are here to enforce that lie, which by enforcing it, you're enforcing your own worthlessness, your own mm -hmm. violence and your own um, self-annihilation. You, and you're, you know, enforcing shame, shame, which is not necessary anymore. Uh, Fritzi, what do you, th if, if, for people who are really touched by your film and feel as I do like passion to, to change the criminal punishment system and, and the prisons, like what's something that, that people can do besides, you know, whatever, write letters to politicians or something like what, in a more personal direct way, what, what can we do? There's a few things. First, uh, there's 2.2 million people in prison. Uh, so we have a letter writing campaign that like, that's a way to see people like join us on the letter writing campaign. Um, write letters about to your congressman. Yes. Um, about making sure your prison system is trauma informed, trauma responsive. And our vision is healing. All prisons are healing centers in the next three years, hmm. healing centers, not prisons. Um, talk to your governor, um, death penalty, you know, let's give these people a chance. Let's kind of put a moratorium at least until we can really understand what trauma does to the brain, body, and spirit. Really get that. Um, the 13th Amendment needs to be um, revoked or rewritten because it, 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 it condones human trafficking. It condones slavery in the prison system. 
And we really need to give those men and women a paycheck. They're working their butts off. Let's pay them so that they can support their families. I know it's a, it's a shift, but it, it brings value to them. And it, it, it says, wait, you're valuable. And it, it, that shifts who they are. If they're, if instead of getting two cents for going out into the fields, like they are in, in Louisiana at Angola prison, which is, it looks just like a slave, a slave chain, give them minimum wage or even $10 a day or, you know, no, $10 an hour. Let's give them so they can help their families so that they can buy the television they need so that when they're sitting there, um, donate to compassionprisonproject.org um, and volunteer with us. You know, we're, we're, doing, we're doing compassion because of COVID, we're, we're training facilitators to do the compassion trauma circle, um, which is one of the most powerful things you can do. And there's this myth that if you open a can, the, the trauma can of worms, that that terrible things will happen. Well, people will start knowing that they're traumatized, which is one of the biggest gifts I was ever given in my life because it gave me a different sense of who I am, a true sense that I'm a divine, incredible woman. And to say that may sound egotistical, but I see that in every human being on the earth. So what I see is now reflected back in you and you're just as magnificent and as divine as I am. And gosh, why is it such so shameful to give each other compliments once in a while? We're so embarrassed by our magnificence. When this is who we are, we're just, I mean, it's glorious. It's glorious. And that's what's available to us. Bring those men and women home and let them heal their communities and let's rebuild those communities. That's a lot of manpower stuck inside a, a fence when they can rebuild every house, you know, prune every garden, you know, uplift their communities. That's what they can do. Paint every wall. Let's, you know, that's who we are. Let, let our communities reflect our divinity and let our society reflect our divinity. That's who we are in this world. And I see it in you and I see it in the man in prison and I see it in that homeless man who won't let me give him any money. He'll only let me give him love. And that's what I do. I just love him and I wink at him. And I say, I love you. And just, you know, give all you can. Stop hoarding, because when you hoard, things rot, right? I think you said that. Um, and I, I want to give, I want to read this quote. I wrote to a couple of men on federal death row, and I sent them the ACE test, and he sent this back to me. His name is Wesley Perkey. He said, The true measure of any human being is found in their empathy and compassion for others and self. This is a man who was executed on July 19th, 2020 by our federal government. And so we didn't give Wesley a chance. And I have his story about how he was annihilated, how he was destroyed as a child, as an eight, 10 year old boy. And yet, and so then we go and annihilate him and, um, mm. and we're better than that. Do you have these, have you published the story? I mean, how, I, I feel like these kinds of stories reach people on a level that, you know, statistics and studies cannot reach. And um, Yeah, uh, I've, I published this story on, 
my old website blog um, and we're publishing other stories um, and I'll, I'll publish this again. I'll put this one out again so you can see okay. um, some of his, some of his story and his photo and who he is, who Wesley Perky was. His crime was heinous. His, his crime was heinous, but what was done to him was even worse. So where, who are we to judge when we sit in a circle, when the judge is equal to the man being tried, we find our commonality and then we make decisions from that point, not from the point of domination and superiority, because that's, that's an old, that's an mm -hmm. old myth and we have new myths to write. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I just love the idea of prisons as healing centers. You know, this actually has been a thread in prison reform movements for a couple hundred years now. The reason that it's even called a penitentiary is originally the idea was we're not going to punish people. We're going to give them a chance to come to penitence, uh, to come to healing or a reformatory, you know, or a corrections, even to call it corrections. It, it speaks like the possibility of change as opposed to a penal facility, uh, you know, for penalties, for punishment. So it looks like after quite a long dark age that this movement is really gathering strength again. And I, I hold with you the uh, possibility of three years, of a three-year transformation. Um, we don't have time. We don't have time. We need to really explore all of the possibilities of, of, of giving and compassion and, and healing. Now we need to explore it and really be curious about what happens when I treat someone with humanity. What happens when I, when I open their hearts and see them as the human beings that they are? We don't have time to continue in the way that we're doing. It's actually urgent. It's urgent now. That's why I put a three three month a three year timeline, because you know they want to do tests and and they want to do statistics and all these demonstration of efficacy and it works. We already have the results. We can do it now. We can like we can. We already have a plan. We're ready to go. Um, mm -hmm. It's about a million dollars per prison in California, and depending on the prison size and other. In other states, it's anywhere from a quarter of a million to half a million dollars to train everybody, trauma-informed care, and then let's go, let's go, let's let's just reboot. It's a reboot. And is the main uh, obstacle uh, funding, or is it more the uh, acquiescence of the authorities to it? I don't think money's going to be a problem. Something tells me money is about to come big time. And so, and with money comes uh, prestige. We have this adopt a prison model. So uh, I want rich people to adopt the prison and call their governor and say, okay, we're adopting this prison. I've paid for your, uh, your, your, you know, your governorship. So now let's, let me adopt this prison and let's just let them do their work. Mm -hmm. Let them, let them do this. Uh, you know, there's going to be probably, I don't see why though. I don't see why the unions would put up a stink to have their, their men treated better, their men and women treated better. And, you know, I just think a, a, a trauma-informed prison is a safer prison. 
men are not acting out because they're being seen. Once you're being seen, you don't want to commit crimes. You want to, you want to do good. You want to give back. That's who we are. That's our, that's our generous nature. So, Mm -hmm. you know, there are some people with real mental health issues as I don't know if I mentioned this, but the three biggest mental health facilities in the U S are Rikers Island, LA County jail and Cooks County jail in Chicago. So yeah, that's the repository. Yeah. I'm I'm thinking like uh, the prison guards, like they could use some trauma healing too, you know, like, and I wonder, were they moved by witnessing the process that you showcase in the film? Like, what is it like for them to watch that and to think, gosh, like I had that happen to me when I was a child too, you know? Um, Well, the statistics that we know of, most of the the correctional officers have four or more ACEs as well. Um, You're seven times more likely to go to prison if you have four or more ACEs. And uh, I guess that's on both sides. Yeah, one way or another, you end up in prison. (laughs) (laughs) Including me. Did, did you get any feedback from any of the guards? You know, I didn't because we were, we had five hours. I thought we had eight. And so we were in and out of there, but I did, there was some cat compassion from one of the guards towards me. Um, mm-hmm. And I can't even actually talk about that because I, I could get him in trouble, but I'd get mm-hmm. me in trouble. Um, but it was very compassionate. And, uh, mm-hmm. um, but that yard is extraordinary. It's an honor yard. Those guys get programming because they don't do any shenanigans. They don't mm-hmm. have cell phones. They don't do drugs. They aren't in gangs. So, you know, that's, that's a de-escalation right there. So those, those correctional officers in that yard are already their level of threat is down. Their hypervigilance isn't, they're probably mm-hmm. gonna live at least another 10 years than, than in the other yards. Mm-hmm. And so that's what you want. We have evidence. I don't know, we don't have evidence of longevity there, but there's less mm-hmm. hypervigilance. And that's, you know, we all co-regulate. We walk into a hypervigilant state. We're all hypervigilant. Like if you look at two dogs, when they're about to attack each other, everyone's, they're in fight or flight. And they're gonna, they're gonna it's just like any, any fight in the street or any two people who have guns, if they're in hypervigilant state, they're in flight or flight, they're going to kill. They're going to kill to the death. And that's what happens. But mm-hmm. it's not, it's not because they're not moral and good human beings. I, yeah, I'm just thinking that, that the prison unions would be less resistant if there was programs for them too, that we could be one. framed around like stress relief, you know, something like that. We have yeah. one, we're having training for them as well. It's training for them and it's curriculum for the residents. Mm-hmm. And yes, they don't talk, They don't come forward and talk about their PTSD because if they do, they're taken, their shifts are taken away, their status is taken away, they're penalized for coming forward. So, mm-hmm. I mean, what do you want? You want a cop on the street who's who's got PTSD, who doesn't come forward and then shoots someone in the back seven times? Or do you want a cop that comes forward and says, "Hey, I need some help." You don't, and then you put you put him on a desk, right? And you take away his gun. But it's like, well, wait a second. He's coming forward. He's he's doing the right thing. And then the people who aren't doing the right thing are out there, you know, destroying our society. And so that has to be mm-hmm. rejiggered as well. It's like because you're, you know, vicarious trauma is real, and. That's yeah. what's ha- that's what's happening for everyone that sees a, a violent act in in society or in prison. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, you know, looking at the amount of trauma out there and the amount of healing that needs to be done, sometimes I just feel despair. Uh, just, you know, just the, the enormity of the task in front of us. And that despair lifts when I see how, what miracles of healing are possible. Like, it doesn't take much, really, for huge progress to be made. You know, like, I mean, the, the people you're working with in the, in the prison, they're not like getting, you know, daily sessions with, with a trauma-informed therapist, you know, doing the latest techniques. I mean, they're getting like an, a very occasional one-day thing, yet the effect is profound. And that says to me that maybe our entire social body can heal way more quickly than my despair recognizes. I think so. I think, I think it's just, it's got to be collaborative and we're, we, we're not in islands. We have to stop watching Netflix all the time. We have to stop drinking and stop all the coffee too. Cause that's, you know, the workaholism, all of this mm -hmm. stuff to try and get to, to be seen. I mean, that's the thing. What we're trying to do is to be seen. So let's see each other. Let's sit in circles. Let's sit and love each other and say, I see you. I see how great you are. Look what you did. That's what I do. That's what we do at Compassion Prison Project is to acknowledge each other. We do the, one of the exercises we do at, at the prison is the gold I see in you. And everyone stands in the center and everyone around the circle goes and says three or four things that they find magnificent about the person in the center. The men, after they, they experienced that, that one of the guys is like, they forgot about us. We're beautiful. And some people say, you know, no one's ever told me that in my life. <laughs> and, you know, to get that, to be able to give that to those men. And then, but you see, I had to stand in the circle too. And, and then I got, then I got back what I was up to, what they saw in me, which, you know, it, that day changed my life. And, um, because that's who I am and that's who they are. That's who we are. You know, I, I do a process in, in retreats that I used to hold um, very similar to that one, uh, similar to the gold I see in you. One thing that I came to understand through doing those is that there are uh, gifts, treasures within people that actually don't even become activated until they are seen. So it's like you're speaking something into existence through that process, awakening something. Exactly. But that's what we do with our thoughts every minute of the day, right? In this moment, we're speaking, we're speaking possibility into existence. And, and that's instead of annihilation, it's the same, mm -hmm. it's the same process. So Yeah. In this moment, we're doing this for society. The gold I see in you. Like the the forgiveness that's possible like the transformation that's possible the beauty that's possible in our society maybe we just have to see that it's there and then we become agents of its awakening absolutely and and it's it's that reluctance to hold back instead of okay balls to the walls let's go let's mm -hmm. give this a shot you know let's wake up and let's go I, I just feel that. And yes, let's talk about our trauma. Yes, let's talk about our past, but let's also in this moment, create something 
that changes our lives yeah. collectively. I want to ask you one more one more question. Um, you know, you you went into this work already having done a lot of trauma work, a lot of self forgiveness, and so forth. And I, I, I'm curious to know, even having done all that work, coming into this process, what new thing did you learn about yourself or about human beings that you didn't know when you came in? Mm. Or maybe what's been the biggest gift to you from, from doing this work? I, I would say it's how powerful we really are. I, I, I'm starting to understand how powerful everyone is just by the thoughts, by the thoughts, by the thoughts that we put into the earth. Um, and I, I know maybe that sounds trite, but I didn't know, I, I didn't walk into prison thinking, um, first of all, that I had all these ideas about how to change it. I just knew I had to do something. And so I think it's that, that urge to do something bigger than yourself that kind of gives you more, uh, more resources, more, um, more possibilities than you would if you were doing something for yourself. So it's that, it's the unlimitedness of all of this that I'm really starting to see. And the, the weird synchronicities that happen, um, mm. just getting a donation from a, from this person at State Farm and then seeing someone on the street and saying, Joe, what's your name? What, what did you do? He says, I work for State Farm. I'm like, what the heck? That was in the same day. It's like, what's that? So, but that happens all the time now. And so to tap into the magic of being alive and sharing that with everyone and the smile that you have can change someone's day, even, even though we're wearing masks now, but smiling in your eyes and connecting um, that book, the presence process. I don't know if you've read that by Michael mm -hmm. Brown, but at the end, you know, after you do this 10 week breathing thing, mm -hmm. totally changed my life. Another one of those things that changed my life. You know, he's like, look in the eyes of the people you see in, in the world and you'll see their, you know, their limitlessness, you know, but their, their immortality, you'll see their immortality. And that's, and in the, and in, cause we are immortal. We live forever. I believe, I believe that we're just doing this and we're here right now to do this. And we came here to do this and I think let's do it. Let's really do it. So I guess I didn't really answer your question really succinctly, but the feeling that we can um, create anything we want in this world. Mm -hmm. the, those synchronicities are fascinating. Uh, the way I see it is if you're just serving yourself, then nothing can happen that you don't actively create in the world. But if you're serving something larger than yourself, then that larger thing becomes your ally and arranges things that you couldn't arrange on your own. Truly, truly. Yeah. So I just say yes to everything now, kind of almost yes to everything. I, there's mm -hmm. some people, there's some, there's some things I can't do because I don't have enough time, but, mm -hmm. but I'm yes, yes. And that, that, that improv thing. Yes. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Yes, I'm going to do this podcast and let's change the world. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes, let's. Uh, any, any other um, 
any other remarks, anything else on your mind that you want to share with people? Um, just, I guess this is the time to remember. This is the time to remember who you really are. Um, and our words really matter. Our, everything we put into the world, we get right back. So are you putting violence or are you putting love into the world? And, uh, and, and, you know, watch that, watch what you're putting in mm -hmm. those microaggressions that sarcasm, all those little things that are just so little, they eat away at our, our at our, our gentle souls. Mm -hmm. And I say, let's, let's treat ourselves with tender gloves, each other, let's treat each other tenderly. And all kinds of things will come from that because then we're seeing, we're being seen when it's a tender moment, we see each other. When it's sarcasm, it's, it's annihilation. It's a subtle form of annihilation. And, and let's uncancel everyone. Can we just uncancel everyone? Um, you know, let's stop annihilating everybody and looking for the bad guy and being self-righteous and, and that other thing, um, the need to be right is a violent act that, hmm. that always, you know, I always watch myself when I want to be right, when I want to be, you know, better than mm -hmm. it's othering. And um, we've done enough of othering. We're good at othering. Yeah. All these more subtle forms of domination that co-resonate with the extreme forms that prison uh, applies to human beings. It's all part of the same matrix. And I believe truly, as you're saying, that altering it on one level will change it on the other levels as well. So thank you for that reminder. And um, yeah, thank you so much for your mm. film. I really wish you the, like every possible blessing in, in your pursuit of the sequel to it and the, and the continuation of the work. Thank you. It's such an honor to be here with you and your expanded vision of the world and of humanity. And uh, um, thank you. Thank you for, for this time. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Fritzi. Thank you. Wow. Yeah. I didn't even introduce you at the beginning. I should probably should do that. I'm not like a professional podcaster. So. Well, you've done 51 right now. The one, the, yeah. one, the woman who did the dark thing. Oh my God. My husband's been wanting to do that. Oh, Dr. Edith. Uh huh. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That was amazing. Yeah. 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 Maybe yeah. I can introduce you now and we can splice it onto the beginning. How should I introduce you? Um, uh, yeah, that's okay. Fritzy Horseman, founder of the Compassion Prison Project. Okay. Um, I won a Grammy award just so you know. Oh, wow. Congratulations. Yeah. For, yeah, what? for defiant ones. I don't know if you ever saw that with Dr. Dre and Jimmy Iovine on HBO. Uh-huh. Um, best, uh, best music, vi uh, film. Best were you, were you, what was your role in that? I was a producer, just a, just uh -huh. a producer, but that's oh, how I, I cause I made this film and you know, Rodrigo Prieto, Martin Scorsese's DP shot that film. So huh. yeah. So, but that's the universe going here, Fritz, do this. Wow. That's, yeah. that's amazing. Yeah. Okay. So if I introduce you, I say, um, speaking today with uh, Fritzy Horseman, founder of the Prison Compassion Project, and actually a recipient of a Grammy Award for a video she produced with Dr. Dre and who else was it? 
Jimmy Iovine, but it's Compassion Prison. It's Compassion oh. Prison Project. Did I, what did I say? Prison Compassion Project. Oh, Compassion Prison Project. Okay, I'm gonna do it again. Okay. Speaking here today with Fritzi Horstman, founder of the Compassion Prison Project, uh, and also the recipient of a Grammy Award of all things for producing a video with Dr. Dre and Jimmy. Iveen. Jimmy Iveen, yes. <clears throat> so yeah, welcome Fritzi, and thanks for coming on. Thank right. you, Charles. <clears throat> yeah, that does it. <laughs> wow, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. You know. Okay, well, yeah. off you go. You're gonna go on retreat for two week, two months. <sighs> yeah, I mean, that's a whole story. Um, I've got a lot of writing I wanna do and um, this thing about, about like, I, you know, before masks, every time that I had a chance, I would be signaling, like, you know, if I bought something in the, in the supermarket, I'd like do something to humanize the interaction. I, you know, talk to the, make a little joke to the clerk, you know, and it's so much harder to do that now. That's one thing that's really gotten to me. Like people, don't necessarily understand you're joking when they when they can't read the the expression the signals you know. So um, back to Michael Brown and um, that's what he says at the end. He says um, there's a gap, there's an, an arbitrary gap that we have between each other, and when you do, when you humanize, when you make those human connections, the gap closes. <laughs> that's when that's when you're in in your divine self. So yeah. I wouldn't, I wouldn't let a mask get in the way of that. Yeah, right. I'm, I, I recognize that this is a limitation, but you know, it's one thing I'm working with. Um, yeah, I hope that we have uh, some further opportunity to um, interact. Oh yeah, I will. I'll have updates because yeah. we're, I'm about to meet with Apple this afternoon. Wow. Yeah. So, Fantastic. Yes. And yeah. There's some really rich people ready to adopt a prison. So we're going to get the pilot going and soon, I hope. We just got to get some governors on board. Yeah. You know. Yeah. The, you know, like the governor who's been seen eating without a mask. <laughs> right. At French Laundry. Yeah. Yeah, we'll okay. have updates. Thank okay. you. Okay. Yep. Thank you. Take care. You made my month. You will. Oh, I will. I will. I'm honored. Yeah. I love you. I love you, Charles. I do. Thank you, Fritzy. I feel the same way. You're just marvelous. Thank you. And beautiful. All those prisoners are right. <laughs> <laughs> that little lady. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Take Off care. You go. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Bye-bye. This has been a new and ancient story with your host, Charles Eisenstein. I offer this podcast in the spirit of the gift, by which I mean that I don't withhold premium content for a price or put up paywalls or do affiliate marketing or have advertising or anything like that. Instead, I rely on supporters like you. If you would like to support it, you can subscribe at charleseisenstein.net for a small monthly amount, or you can subscribe for free as well. Either way, you get the same content, everything's the same, and you'll be notified every time a new podcast comes out. Also on the site, you can find archived episodes along with everything else that I produce, essays, books, videos, online courses. Thank you very much for listening, and I'll be with you again next time.